Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. That's in the Bibles there in your seats is page 1014, if you'd like to follow along with those. So you're welcome to use your own Bibles or apps. Uh, Peter is writing to a group of Christians he identifies as elect exiles, likely pushed out of the center of the empire to this more uh, rural area with less power, with less resources, and likely as Jewish Christians with less family and familiarity. Peter, knowing their trials, their discouragement, writes to them of the living hope of the new birth and what they are to do in light of their exile. Let's read as Peter continues his words to the churches and to us today. 1 Peter 1, 13-21 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I said a few weeks ago, our turn to 1 Peter was in a response to where we are. I think as a church, we have many feelings of alienation from the culture around us, struggles with our own circumstances, and the questions of why are we in these situations? Does God care? What are we to do? Uh, the plan is that next week you'll hear from Reverend Tomlinson after I return from study leave, and then the 19th we will have our fourth sermon from this series and then return to 1 Corinthians 5. But God knows what those to whom Peter wrote was going through. God knows what we are going through, and so let's pray that his word would speak to us where we are today. Dear God, we come to you. We pray to you and ask that the words that we have heard read aloud, your word, your voice speaking to your people would have its way with us. That we would continue to hear you speaking in these next few moments. That we would know you, see you, respond to you, and that you would be glorified. Have your way with us, O Lord, we pray. Would I serve that purpose and nothing else? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we were looking at verses 3 through 12, and in those verses, as Peter wrote to these various Christians in these various regions in Asia Minor, 
we examine an attitude of worship and praise. A call to rejoice, to glorify God as Peter does, even in the midst of exile, of being in a place that is not our home among people who are not our people. We looked at how we could rejoice in the strength and the wealth and the significance we have that God gives us in Christ. We can rejoice in the living hope that he gives us even in the midst of trial. Yet the great mercy of God to us in Christ, the foretold salvation that the prophets spoke of, the matters of redemption into which the angels long to look, are about more than an attitude of joy. But they are also about the action of holiness. We're not just called to have a certain affection for God, but the affection that God gives us for him in light of this great salvation, in light of the mercy, in light of the living hope, in light of the hope of the resurrection, is a call to action. The elect exiles of the dispersion are not called to merely look heavenward and tell the end of their exile when their earthly pilgrimage is over, but they're called to be about their Father's work, living in holiness as God is holy. This morning we are called to hear God's call upon our lives. That to live in this world that is not our home any longer because of sin and because we don't no longer belong to this world but belong to Christ is not merely to wait our time out. To just treat this as the waiting room until we enter into God's kingdom. But there is work for us to be done now. Peter has addressed their attitudes framed according to gospel truth in order to exhort them and us into gospel-based living. He says, therefore, and any time scripture says therefore, as some wiser people have said, we should ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. What is it connecting? The gospel is not just good news for the future, but good news for now and how we live our lives. Therefore, we are called to be holy. But in order to be holy, to be about the work that God has given us in the midst of our exile, to do the duty that we have, we need to prepare for it. Before we can act in a holy manner, we need to prepare for holiness. And holiness doesn't just happen. We may actually tend to think of holiness as what we don't do, what we refrain from. That holiness is about not sinning. That holiness is about not being polluted, not being like the world. And that certainly is true. But Peter, who walked with Jesus, who proclaimed the good news of the gospel, who had been imprisoned for the sake of Christ, he knows that holiness is no passive process. Not just resistance to evil, that it is hard work. And so before he gets to the call to worship in verses 14 and 17, talking about obedience and being holy and watching over our lives with fear, he calls them to prepare for the work of holiness. Consider what he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
First, he says, preparing your minds for action. And the ESV is a translation that seeks to stay pretty close to the original language and its word order, but here's one of those times where it's not just an exact uh, translation. The exact translation of the Greek here is girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. Now, that might not make things any clearer for you. But to gird up your loins is to keep in mind that that the normal citizen of this period did not wear pants. They wore tunics and robes, flowing things, which were comfortable, which were easier to manufacture. Uh, Usually it was just one or two garments that they had. And for all the, the blessings and benefits of such a garment, in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a battle, in the midst of the need to be agile, it's a tripping hazard. If you have some difficult work to do, or if you're about to go into battle, you would take the hem of your garment, you would pull them up and either tuck it in your belt or tie it off so that you could be prepared for the work, so that you would not be tripped up by your garments. He says your minds need to be prepared for the task of holiness. Then he goes on to say being sober-minded. And to be sober-minded, we know, is the opposite of being drunk. When we're drunk, we're prone to, make, uh, to be distracted, to mistake things, to be confused or disordered. His call is to be alert and able to be focused because there are potential distractions coming. There are potential obstacles that we will have to navigate There are alternatives and decisions that we will have to make in pursuit of holiness. And if we come to it lightly, if we come to it ill-prepared, if we come to it with our minds not prepared to make such decisions, then we are already setting ourselves up to struggle with that call to holiness. We are to be sober-minded with the loins of our minds girded so that we can set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at Jesus' coming. Now, in order to understand that, we need to remind ourselves what biblical hope is. Hope is not saying, I hope I have a white Christmas. A, a, A mentioning of some desire that we think that we would like to come about. That's not the biblical picture of hope. But rather, I have hope in tomorrow. That is, I have a sense that tomorrow is coming. An assurance that unless God comes and the world ends, that tomorrow is coming. We are to set ourselves fully in hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Grace is favor. Grace is gift. Peter says we are not to focus on what the present has to offer but what is yet to come in Christ. Peter's call is a correction to our often unexamined assumptions that when we base our hope, that we often base our hope on holiness. That is, if we are good enough, if we are special enough, if we are obedient enough, then we will have a basis of hope in God's love. But our hope is not based on our holiness but our holiness on our hope. 
our hope of God's grace. The assurance that when Jesus comes again, our faith in him means we will receive the blessings that he has in store for us. We are not working to be holy in order to earn the reward of God's favor, but he has already offered us that gracious favor. He has demonstrated that favor and grace in the sacrificial work of Christ in order to share in that inheritance that is kept in heaven from us, for us, as he said last week. Now I explained what girding our loins of our mind is about, but now we begin to see why. Because to be holy is to be distinct, to be set apart to God, and thus living God's ways for his purposes. That means that we will live in ways that are not always rewarded by the culture and the systems and the power structures around us, that we may feel odd, that we may feel different, ostracized, strange, and yes, sometimes suffer as a result. And if we're not sober-minded about this truth, if our minds aren't prepared, we will default to question the work of holiness when we don't see the reward of acceptance, applause, or easygoing. That is, if our hope is set on what the world has to offer for us, then we will be living for the world instead of for what God offers us and has made sure for us in Christ. Think of it this way. How many of us will set out for a hike in the whites with just a pair of flip-flop sandals? If you do that, you're going to get hurt or you're going to turn back real quick. Because you know that for however rewarding that view will be when you crest that summit, however enjoyable the nature, however delightful the endorphins after we enjoy a long hike, that in order to get to those things will be hard work that we need to be prepared for with the right gear, with the right mindset, with the right supplies. The journey through this world that is not our home is likewise long and often treacherous. Rather than giving up the journey and turning back because holiness is hard or it's not immediately rewarding, Peter calls us to fix our gaze on what awaits us at the end and thus to do the necessary work of preparing ourselves for the journey, of counting the cost, of stealing our minds and our wills for the perseverance that's necessary. I mean, sometimes when we go before the Lord in prayer in the morning, in times of devotions, that as we pray, that we pray not just for success, not just for a good day, not just for a good work, not just for enjoyable relations with our families and our friends. Though certainly those things are appropriate to pray for. But we might also be praying, God, prepare me for disappointment. Prepare me for rejection. Allow me to be okay with the fact that to live after you will make me strange among strangers. When we go to God knowing that what he offers us, first of all, is already secure in what Christ has done and is waiting for us at the end of this journey, then we can be prepared for the obstacles and the challenges that come. Fixing ourselves setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The grace not of our neighbors liking us. The grace not of the government upholding our values. The grace of not doing the right thing and being rewarded with financial success. But the grace that comes when the king comes and makes all things right. If we're going to be holy, if we're going to be about that work, we need to prepare ourselves for it. And then we need to do that work. What is the work of holiness? As described here, and we could say so much more about what it is to be holy, we could, we could just go to the book of Leviticus and sit there for months to really examine that. But Peter gives us a few things to understand what it is that we are called to do to be about the work of holiness. And the first thing that we need to do is to know who you are. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As obedient children. Peter situates the work of holiness, the examination of their conduct, their holy lives, to be framed from the understanding that they are children. He assumes that they understand this. He says, if you're going to call on him as father, in order to live a holy life, we need to consider that we are children of the living God that we have a relationship with God and that the reason we are called to be is holy is that we have been called into a covenant relationship with a holy God. We obey him because he is our father who cares for us, who delivers us from our enemies, sin, death, and evil, just as he delivered the Israelites from Egypt to be his holy people. The work of holiness stems from our position as holy because we have been set apart as belonging to God, a holy God who has chosen to make us in Christ his children. The work of holiness starts with the ability to hear the call of God upon our life as the call of not only the judge of the world who determines what's right, but the judge of the world who wants our blessing and our goodness. The last few years, I've been going back and forth, depending on the season, despite my lack of skills in coaching soccer and coaching t-ball. And here's the thing about coaching four, five, and six-year-olds. They're not great listeners. And the other thing is that especially when they are caught up in the moment of, of, of trying to swing at that ball or to kick it, the ball into the goal or to run to that base, that in all of that work, they often are unable to hear my voice. But whose voices do they hear? Which can be a help and sometimes not. Their parents' voice. They might hear me say, swing or don't swing. They might say, hear me say, hustle or not. But they have been attuned to hear the words of their parents and to say, this is a voice I need to listen to. If we are to listen to the commands of God, if we are to obey his call upon our life, if we are to live holy, 
We're only going to be able to do that if we acknowledge that not only is he judged, but he is our father who made us, loves us, and desires to be in relationship to us. So the first part of the work of holiness is knowing who we are or who God calls us to be in him. And the second part is repentance. Martin Luther said the Christian life is the life of repentance. Repentance is a two-step process. It is a turning from something and a turning to something. Repentance is not just about acknowledging a wrongdoing. Okay, and, and Peter's not addressing even that form of repentance. He isn't saying, you're doing these things, you need to stop doing these things. But as he calls them to walk in holiness, he's calling them to turn from old things to new things. The Greek, this Hebrew word means literally to turn. The Greek word for repentance means to change one's mind. We move from one trajectory, one set of thoughts and values and actions to another. So the first part of the work of holiness and repentance is to turn from past ways, from past desires and patterns. Holiness isn't just about what we do or what we say. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount revealed that so very clearly. It's not just about not murdering people, about not committing adultery, about whether people see you fasting or praying, but whether you are actually going before the God in humility to pray. Are you actually loving your neighbor? Are you actually protecting your view of those around you from lustful thoughts? Verse 14 speaks of former passions. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, they had values that they had before the Spirit opened their eyes to Christ. They were driven. They were motivated. They desired things that are opposed to the holiness of God. One of the first things we need to do is identify that which we desire that is not consistent with what God wants for us. And then verse 18 reminds them that they are to live in obedience, mindful that they have been ransomed from the futile ways that they inherited from their forefathers. That is, they have learned patterns of disobedience and practice that could not save them. Our motives and our actions, we need to turn from ways that don't lead to life, whether out of ignorance or because they're not good enough, we need to examine them. Before we can consider our conduct as those called to holiness, we need to consider our passions and patterns. What are we seeking? What are we desiring? What is driving us to act? Is our desire Christ and Christ-likeness? We need to examine our hearts before God, asking him to expose by the Spirit, according to his word, what we might be seeking that is not of him. Is it recognition or influence? Is it autonomy? Is it wealth? Is it full bellies? Is it sexual satisfaction? Are these the things that are driving us? Or is it the things of God? And then follows our examples. We all have them. Whether we have been parented both literally or figuratively in our spiritual walk. We have learned patterns from men and women who have had influence in our lives. Some of us live not in conformity to those patterns, but in reaction to the leaders and parents and teachers and coaches that have failed us. But even then, we are letting their example dictate what we do. 
Is it their ways that determine our course? Or is it the way of life in our Father? If we are going to be about the work of holiness, we need to examine our hearts and our past desires and ask, are these in conformity with God? And if not, turn away from them. And then to examine our patterns of behavior and say, do these lead us to life? Is this consistent with what God wants for me? And turn from those. And turning from those, we turn to the Father. How He is and who He is and what He has shown us. He is holy. The one that has called us is holy. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Who is God? Who is the one that calls us to obedience? He is one who sets the example. Who sets what holiness is. Who, unlike every other example we might look to, is perfect. How many of us live with the disappointment of men and women who have set high standards to which they have called us to follow only to see them fail to live up to those same standards? But God's call to holiness comes out of the reality that He is perfectly holy in who He is, perfectly righteous. And therefore, because He is holy, we are to listen to what He has said. Turning to the Father means attunement to what He has said. This quotation, Be holy as I am holy, comes from Leviticus 19.2, in the midst of a restatement of the various commands from the Ten Commandments that God's people were supposed to live. They were to be reminded that since God is their covenant God, since God is holy, that His commands matter for their life. We're to remember also that he is judge. We turn to him as a father, but it causes us to take him seriously. That he isn't our father just because he is a nice guy, but he is our father because he comes to judge sin. And it is his adoption of us, his deliverance of us from that sin that gives us hope, not in his ignoring of our sin. In order to turn to the Father, we need to ask, how is God holy? How has He shown His holiness? What does God desire? What does it look like for Him to pursue holiness? We see that in Christ, who is the only one who is the perfect image and representation of God the Father, the only one who has perfectly obeyed Him. We find it in the Word, which tells us of Christ. We find it in prayer where we seek the holy God and ask, Lord, what do you want from me that we might hear his voice? And we find it in fellowship with other brothers and sisters who are seeking to be holy and point us towards the Father. Holiness is recognizing God as our Father, the judge who determines what is good for us, what is right, and to turn from what others say and others instruct to do that which our Father desires for us. We are to be about our Father's work. And then we are to consider the goals of our holiness. When we speak of holiness, when words like fear come up, we can think of the life of holiness as that of avoiding trouble, of just trying to keep our heads down, of getting God off of our back, where we are just trying to avoid guilt. 
But as Peter reminds us that we are not walking in the old ways, but instead we have been ransomed from those old ways, from those futile ways of living in guilt and living in legalism, of trying to prove ourselves to God. And we were ransomed not by things so mundane as silver and gold, not so commonplace as the riches of this world, but we were ransomed through the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, the perfect blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. As he reminds us of that ransom, he reminds us that the guilt has already been taken care of in Christ. The price is not our obedience because Christ has already paid that. Brothers and sisters, we come to live holy lives not to please God. Not to earn God's favor. We come to live holy lives because Christ first lived that perfect holy life for us and shows us the way. Our holiness is not about getting rid of guilt or even getting good things from God, but our holiness comes from a realization of how far-reaching His goodness to us in Christ has already been demonstrated. He sent Jesus who paid the price for our sins, who rose from the dead in glory in order to bring us to God. So our holy obedience is driven, is motivated by gratitude and God's glory and God Himself. The goals of our holy, obedient lives are gratitude to God. When we see the price paid, when we see the precious blood, we are grateful for the gift, but we're also grateful for what that says about God's view of us. That however sinful, however disobedient, however dead in our transgressions, however deserving of His wrath, In his loving election, he chose us to receive the most precious gift that could be possibly given, the blood of his son. The work of living holy lives, of watching our conduct as God's children, is that of seeing the riches that have been given to us and living our lives in reflection, in gratitude of the grace and mercy and riches of Christ bestowed upon us. We live holy lives not to get God off our back, not to earn His favor, not even to pay Him back, but because we're grateful for that gift that He has given us in Christ. We live then not for our glory, but for His. Jesus was known from before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of us, who through Him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God demonstrates his glory and power for us in Christ. So when we turn to Christ, we might share in that glory to be a demonstration, not of our goodness, not of our power, but of the glory of God. The goal of our holiness is to show the goodness and the power and the glory of God. Be holy as I am holy was a call to Israel not to show how great they were, but the greatness of God to the surrounding nations. Our call to holiness is not so that the world will look at us and think, wow, the Christians are the best, but they will see the glory of God and what He calls us to 
as we seek to follow him. Instead of trying to build ourselves up, the more we serve in obedience, the more we see the worth of God and our faith and hope testify to that. And lastly, the goal of our holiness, brothers and sisters, is God himself. The more we seek holiness, the more we seek to understand what it is, the more we seek to live in holiness, the more we must recognize that we cannot do it, that we don't have the strength, that we're not good enough, that we're not holy enough. And so what we need to do, we need to have our faith and hope in God. The call to live a holy life is not so that we will live in guilt and doubt and fear because of how unholy we are, but to draw us closer to the God who is holy. Draw us closer to the God that has given us everything in Christ. The goal of our holiness, brothers and sisters, is God himself. That is what he wants to give us. Life with him. Life with the Father. Life in the Son. That's what he desires. been a number of years since the movie The Lion King came out. Hopefully there aren't any spoilers. But the story is of Simba, the son of the king of the lions, who after his father Mustafa's death is driven into exile. To live in a land that is not his, to no longer be welcome in home. You know what? It's not a bad place. He's encouraged to have no worries, to be laid back until he finds out that there is trouble at home, that his people are oppressed, that they are suffering, that they are hungry under the rule of his uncle Scar. And he has two choices. He can live in the land of exile as the people of that land do, with no worries, with no duties, no responsibilities. To just live for what that land of exile offered him. Lots of fat, juicy grubs that he could eat. Or he could go back. And he could fight with the same violence, with the same anger, with the same deceit that caused him to be exiled in the first place because of the evil of his uncle. Or could take up the mantle of his father who had given his life so that Simba could live. He could take up the responsibility to go to deliver those who were living in darkness, in exile, and suffering and live like his father. We have a similar choice in our exile. We can live according to the ways of the world around us, finding satisfaction in what the land of exile gives us. Or we can fight against the suffering that we experience by fighting against that sense of exile and strangeness by lashing out against the strangers and the people that hurt us. Or we can live in our exile in holiness like our Father like the God who called us to holiness, to the God who says that for however long we are called to walk in this land of exile, at the end, we will receive all of the grace, all of the favor, all of the goodness that the son of a king deserves. Brothers and sisters, not only are we called to worship God, 
but to do the work of holiness so that we might live in gratitude, so that we might point to God's glory, and so that we might experience God himself until he comes and gives himself fully to us when all things are made new. Would he uphold us in that call to live in a holy manner? Let's pray. Lord, we cannot live the life of holiness that you call us to apart from the good news of the gospel that Christ has done all that is necessary for the fulfillment of the law, that he has offered himself as a sacrifice, and that he is coming again. Lord, until that day, uphold us as our Father, as the perfect judge, to live in the holiness that you've called us to. Whatever the world around us says, in Jesus' name, amen.